Good morning. If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the book of Mark? That is the shorter of the two Gospels that begin with M. And we are in chapter 8. Have you ever seen a, a picture that gets shared on the internet a lot where there's something in the picture and everybody says, can, can you see the rabbit? Or can you see the elephant driving the taxi? And you look at the picture and you can't. And then once you see it, you're like, how did I not see that? And then from then on, every time you look at that picture, that's the first thing you see. Or especially in wildlife photography or in hunting groups, they'll say, you know, can you see the white tail? And you're like, I see a field of grass. And then somebody will say, oh, to the right of the stump and down. And you're like, how did I not see that? And then every time. We're going to see something like that in this chapter. We're going to see something right in front of everybody and everybody going, huh? And it's going to be from some different stories. So if you'll join with me in Mark chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, his disciples answered But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls of pieces you picked up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. Do you still not understand? They came to Bethesda, and some more people brought, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside of the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on them, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. One more time, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. 
Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What, is, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. The word of the Lord. Now, this chapter starts, it might seem like a little deja vu. We're like, hey, there's a crowd. Jesus is feeding them. And in fact, it's so... (laughs) so conspicuously placed close to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 that uh, it became fairly common for some, in some schools of scholarship to say Mark was just confused and he was telling the same story in two different ways. He thought it was two different occasions. It was really one story. Well, we actually have uh, this really good historian. We don't have a lot of his stuff. We have fragments of his stuff, but this historian... Uh, from the late 1st century, early 2nd century A.D., uh, named Papias. And Papias was one of the first people, he went around talking to everybody he could find that had been witnesses to the events of the gospel, and he asked them about it, and he wrote down what, what they said. And we, we know what he wrote, be, some of what he wrote, because other people quoted him, even though we've lost most of his texts. We have other people's quotes of him. And he was very specific about Mark and how Mark did his gospel. And he said, Mark was writing down Peter's recollections and wrote them all down and then arranged them in the gospel. And so it's very unlikely if he was getting this directly from Peter, he was confusing one thing as two events. And I think also that there's something going on here more than just the same thing. You know, and we don't do that with anything anything else. We don't, when Jesus hears heals a blind man, we don't go, oh yeah, he healed a blind man earlier, so obviously this is the... No, we don't do that with anything else. So the only reason people would do this with this story is kind of an inherent anti-supernatural bias. But there's something going on here. We again have a big crowd that's come to see Jesus, but this time there's not the question of how can you afford to buy food for them in the villages. Here the question is, We're in the middle of nowhere. How are we going to feed these people? And this is the disciples asking him this. You would think Jesus would go, you've you've seen this before. You should know what's going to happen. But But they don't. It's like, yeah, Jesus did that once, but, you know, can he do that again? Well, it turns out he can. Um, but I'm not going to be too hard on them for 
reasons I'll explain in a little bit. And this time, they, don't, they can't shake down a little kid for his lunch. <laughs> they have to give up their own bread. And it's really interesting that here the bread and the fish are, are separated, you know, whereas there were loaves and fishes in the other one. Here there's some bread, and he breaks it and gives thanks, and then it's like, oh, and then they found some fish. It's almost even like his disciples, even though they'd seen this before, they're a little hesitant, and they're kind of holding on to some stuff. Yes, they've seen Jesus do miraculous things, but, you know, they've been with Jesus Two years at this point, a year and a half, certainly not the full three yet. And, and they've been fishermen and living in the system of the world their whole lives. So maybe there's this sense in which their lived experience kind of outweighs their recent experiences. This isn't just true for fishermen who are recently acquainted with Christ. This is true for people that have known Christ for 37 years and seen him faithfully show up again and again and again, but still... When it gets rough, you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? So they give their bread, and then when he gives thanks and starts distributing it, they're like, oh yeah, we have this fish also. So they take, and, and he gives thanks for that also. For everything he's given, he gives thanks and sends it out. And it's enough. What they have is enough. Now, the loaves and the fish obviously wouldn't have been enough. That's not enough to feed 4,000 people. It's, you know, you, you don't have enough there to make fish fillet sandwiches for 4,000 people. And there's no mention of mustard, I uh, will point out here. Um, so again, you know, these aren't great fish sandwiches, but, you know, something. And I like this because this is, this is just such a good illustration of, of our lives before God. You get into these arguments between grace and works uh, in some Protestant circles you know, if you, if you start really trying to press into God, somebody will come up and go, well, you're, you're engaging in works righteousness. You need to trust the grace of the Lord. And there can be something to that. But a lot of times I think our lives are like these fish and loaves. It's not enough. It, it's, it's not enough to do what the Lord requires. But we still give it to him when he asks what we've got. And we trust that he will use that. And, and this is just, I love this illustration of that. So we have this, this feeding, and we have the disciples doubting again. And we go from the feeding, and we cross the lake, and we come to the region of Dalmanutha, and we get this little, little segment about the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked for a sign from heaven. And it says, he sighed deeply. Well, in certain traditions of the church, we, we have different traditions of the church that take various positions on the gifts of the Spirit and whether or not they're still active today. I came up in a charismatic tradition which embraced all the gifts as still active today, including speaking of tongues, and somebody would give an interpretation of tongues. Now, I am not going to claim that I have the gift of interpreting tongues, but I am going to venture an interpretation of Jesus' deep sigh here. Using my sanctified imagination, I think it is, oh my gosh, you guys are idiots. That's, that's my interpretation. Feel free to read your own in there. And he's like, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Now, there's, there's some real depth here that, you, that 
is kind of covered up in the English translation. But when it says to test him, the Greek word there is not just like to test to see equality. It's not the type of word that you use when it talks about the testing of our faith. The testing that's the testing of our faith, that word has the the notion of appraising, kind of showing you what's there. This word is usually translated tempted or trap. In fact, it is the same word that will be used in the Gospel of Matthew to talk about what the devil does to Jesus when he's dragged into, or he's led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. It's that same word. It is not really to show what Jesus is made of. It's to trick him up. And what they're asking for is a sign. And it is very much, very, very much like what the devil did when he took Jesus into the wilderness. He asked him to do these spectacular things. He asked him, he's like, cast yourself down from the top of the, of the temple, you know, and everybody will see you're the Messiah. You know, God will catch you and everybody will go, oh yeah, that's the Messiah. Or bow down to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. He's asking Jesus to do, use his power in a way that would just be flashy and just to show, you know, if you're really the king, do this. If you're really Messiah, you're going to do this. That's what the Pharisees are asking for. If they'd been watching, everything Jesus has done up to this point is a sign. But almost exclusively, the things that Jesus does, the signs Jesus does, are not things that are done as signs. They are the natural inbreaking of God's redemptive work in the coming of his kingdom. Jesus doesn't heal blind people to prove he's Messiah. He heals blind people because the nature of God's kingdom coming is to open the eyes of people. He heals deaf people because the nature of God's kingdom coming is to open people's ears so they can hear. He feeds people because the nature of God's kingdom coming, the nature of restored creation, is that God meets our needs. So these are signs that are happening. And if people had been reading the Old Testament, if they'd been reading the prophets, they would have said, oh yeah, this, this is it. But no, instead they're like, hey, show us something. And I'm not going to be too tough on the Pharisees here either, because we're going to come back to this. and I'll explain how there's a lot of that going around. Well, after this, confrontation with the Pharisees and go like, I'm not going to give you a sign. And they get back in the boat. They go back across the lake. Like I say, man, these, these disciples have just got to be really buff at this point because they spend their whole time rowing back and forth across the lake. Like, you know, just crossing the lake. Like I said, this is Judean CrossFit. And they're in the boat. And he says, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And what do they do? They're like, oh, man. It's because we didn't bring any bread. Boom! This must have been another point where Jesus was just going, really, really? And in fact, he will. And he gives this interesting statement, which in in my NIV is not uh, put marked out as a quote, but actually is a quote. He's like, do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? He's actually quoting the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 5 when Jeremiah is addressing 
the last free generation of the kingdom of Judea before they go into exile because they won't hear the Lord. He's quoting from that because the prophet said to them, look, you you have ears and you don't hear, you have eyes and you don't see. And when he's speaking to the king and he's saying, look, you guys have been so far from God. You're not repenting. This is going to end. And what do they do? They're like, ah, that prophet, he's speaking against the king. Throw him in a well. It's interesting because that's the last free generation of Judea, the kingdom of Judah, rather. Here, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but he is actually addressing that generation. And that is going to be pretty much the last free generation of Judea as a nation because after his death, they're not going to learn their lessons. They're not going to follow this Messiah. They're going to insist on the military vision of liberation that they're embracing and they're going to lose their kingdom. So there's 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 a strong parallel here. And he talks about watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Well, yeast, leaven, you know, this, this is the age of sourdough. You know, whenever you make, make your bread, you take a little batch of the last batch you made and you put it in the dough to make the new, new batch. And you take a little bit, but it works its way through all things, through, through the whole batch of dough. So one of the things we get from this being described as the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod is if you let a little bit of it in, it will work through everything and make the whole thing a a bad project. But what is the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod? You know, these these aren't the same group of people. They're different groups of people. And because Mark has been, in his gospel up to this point, hasn't really talked about Jerusalem and Judea, Here he's just talking about the two factions that are relevant in in Galilee, which would be the the Pharisees and Herod, the the king. Not the temple party of the Sadducees. They're not mentioned here because they haven't really come into the story at this point. But both of them are concerned in different ways with maintaining the status quo, with tightening the status quo. The vision of the Pharisees is to more strictly adhere to the word of God and, and to preserve Jewish tradition through strict observance of the, of the traditions of men. And with Herod, it's just maintaining the family integrity of his line and keeping ruling Jerusalem. That was never what Israel was intended to do. Israel was intended to go and bear fruit. God, when he blessed Abraham, he said, look, I'm going to bless you so that through you, this whole project of blessing is going to come to the whole world. The kingdom of Israel did not do that and went into exile. And now that they've returned from exile and sort of have a kingdom again, they're not doing it. And over and over, we get this model. This Jesus will talk about the kingdom of Israel in agricultural ter- terms. He'll give the parable. he say, the kingdom of Israel is like a fig tree that I had in my vineyard. And I went to it, and it didn't bear any fruit. So I told the keeper of the vineyard, you know, cut it down. We're going to burn that tree up. And he said, listen, just give me three years. I'm going to dig around it. I'm going to put fertilizer on it. I'm going to water it special. And if in the end of three years it doesn't bear fruit, we'll chop it down and burn it. That's, that's Israel. That's, that's Judea at this point. Jesus has a three-year ministry. 
He goes around healing. He goes around feeding. He goes around opening the eyes of the blind. He goes around teaching. But it does not make the nation as a whole turn around and bear fruit. Their purpose wasn't just to exist. Our purpose as a church isn't just to exist. It isn't to preserve our existence. It's to go and bear fruit. And Jesus will say that to his disciples in John when he gives the picture of the vine. He says, look, I'm the vine and you're the branches. If you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. But if you don't, you're going to be picked up and tossed in the fire. So don't be like that. Don't let that idea infect you. Don't think that your purpose for existing is to exist. We get across the lake, strong rowers. We get another miracle of healing a blind man. And this is interesting because this is the first miracle we get that kind of occurs in two parts. Jesus comes to the blind man. He spits in his eyes. God can do that sort of thing. It's kind of, kind of gross to 21st century sensibilities. Puts his hand on his eyes and says, do you see anything? He says, well, I, I see people. They look like trees, but they're walking around. So he puts his hands back on him, and his sight is fully restored. He says, don't even go into the village. I've healed you. Don't, don't even go into the village. That's kind of interesting because it doesn't happen all at once. It's hopeful because it doesn't happen all at once. Because it kind of shows us that sometimes things take a little bit of time. So they don't always happen at once. Now, when I, when I was talking last week, I talked about the allegorical interpretation of Scripture and how people would take straightforward historical stories and, and read more meaning into them. I talked about how that was a Greek tendency. I, I believe this is a real miracle story. I absolutely believe that Jesus did a healing this way, but I think it is 100% by design that this comes right before Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus' rebuke of Peter. Because we go right from this, this blind man whose eyes were opened, but, but he saw trees walking around. And then we have Jesus saying to his disciples, who are people are saying I am? And they repeat the common gospel. Oh, some people think you're John the Baptist. We know Herod thinks he's John the Baptist. It's like, oh my gosh, I beheaded this guy and he's back. That's why there's miracles happening. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. And the reason you say Elijah is because Elijah was taken up into heaven, never died, so he could easily come back down. And he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. He goes, you are the Messiah. So he's got that part right. But then when Jesus is going to talk about what must happen to the Messiah, Peter starts to rebuke him. He goes, no, no, you're the Messiah. That's not going to happen. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. That's really strong language to your, your student, your disciple. This reminds me so much of being in college. I, some of you know that the um, first part of my college career, I was studying physics. And um, when you get to the more advanced physics class, we're taking a class called modern physics, which is where you learn uh, relativity and quantum mechanics. 
And um, <laughs> this is so far beyond classical Newtonian physics that sometimes you, you don't know what's going on, you don't know why you don't know what's going on, and you don't know how to ask a question to change that situation. This would be really discouraging, except you can look around, and where I went to school, physics classes were very small because not that many people that silly. Um, you know, there's 14 of you, and everybody's just like looking, going, you know what? What's going on here? And you just sit there with your black looks on your face, and the professor gets angrier and angrier and yell at you. But sometimes, sometimes you would get a little gleam, a little grasp, and you would think, wait, I know this. And you would answer a question, the professor would be great, now why do you think that? And you just, you just sink like a stone. It's like, yeah, it's, it's a lepton. Yes, okay, well, great, why? Um, boom, that's Peter here. He got the first part of the question right, but he couldn't show his work. And Jesus says, no, this is what the kingdom is like, and this is what my followers are going to be like. It's about laying down your life. It's not about miraculously conquering. It's about laying down your life, which is going to be a greater conquest and victory than you can ever think of. But if you come after me, this is what's in store. That's the type of Messiah this is. Now, there's a reason I don't want to be too hard on the disciples at the first, first miracle. This is, this is the lived experience of most Christians. This is, has biblical precedent. If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the most powerful scenes in the Old Testament is uh, that the northern kingdom of Israel is ruled by a wicked king named Ahab and his wicked queen named uh, Jezebel. And they've brought in these prophets of Baal to displace the prophets of the true God. And um, the prophet Elijah goes and he, he, first of all, he prays that there'll be no rain and puts the country into a drought. And finally, the king sends his, his right-hand man out to talk to Elijah. And there's going to be this confrontation to settle things. And they meet um, on Mount Carmel. And they have all the, all the pagan prophets they set up an altar and <laughs> Mount. <laughs> no dessert references here. People are okay, yeah. And it happened on a Sunday. No. Um. Anyway, so they're on Mount Carmel and they have their they have their altar with their sacrifice on it, and they're praying for their God to come down and consume their sacrifice with fire, and they're. They're just, they're whipping themselves and they're cutting themselves and they're making a great scene and nothing happens. And Elijah's kind of cocky. He's like, why don't you yell louder? Maybe your God's in the bathroom and can't hear you. But nothing happens. Then he makes, he restores the altar of the Lord there. He puts his sacrifice on it and he ups the odds. He pours water over it. And then he calls on God and God answers with fire and consumes the offering, and all the water, and the altar. And then Elijah, mighty in conquest, gives orders, and the prophets of Baal are, are executed, and he prays to end the drought. And his servant says, I can see a little cloud off in the east. And he's like, that's it. Get going, because the rain's coming. Miraculous, 
powerful moment, one of the high points of the Old Testament. What happens immediately after it? He hears that the queen is mad because of what he did and is going to kill him, so he runs off into the desert to hide and die. Right from the most powerful moment of, his, of, of ministry, he does that. That is us all the time. God brings us through things, and we are like, yes, we serve a mighty God. Our God is powerful. And then the next thing happens, the next unexpected bill arrives, and we have this amazing ability to just be called back because we have so much experience of living in the world that that always kind of hits us more than the things we've seen with God. And I, I, I've probably told you this, but I, I have a favorite Christian songwriter named Terry Taylor, and he wrote this wonderful song called I'll Get Over It. And it's about having that experience of, of God moving powerful in your, powerfully in your life, and right at that moment you think, ah, yes, I have this experience of God. Now everything will be different. But then you go back out into the world and you kind of get over it. And then the next time, so that's the disciples here. They're, I'm not going to be hard on them. And I'm not going to be hard on the Pharisees asking for a sign. Because that's also a very Christian tendency, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. You can start to look around at your life and um, you're like, man, I'm Am I, am I doing any good? Am I doing what I, I thought I was doing? God, could you just give me a sign? Probably all of you all are much more mature than me and have never had one of those moments, but I definitely have. But the signs of the Messiah working in your life aren't the stars transforming to spell out your name. Matter of fact, Jesus says there's only going to be one time there's a sign like that, and when that sign comes, ah, Game over, too late. But the sign of the Messiah is where you've been blind, you see now. Where you've been deaf, you hear now. When, where you've been hungry, you're fed more now. Where you've been oppressed by the enemy, you have liberation. And because until Messiah comes again, we don't experience the totality of that, there's always little, little parts of our lives that don't show that, but there should also be parts of our lives that do show that. There should be parts of our lives where things have changed. One of the, one of the ways that I know when I'm at my lowest points, I can remind myself that, that I know God is working in my life. Where I grew up as a Christian, where, well, where I came to faith as a Christian, I was already an adult. Um, you know, they put a lot of emphasis on the testimonies. I was a bank robber and a drug addict, and then I got saved and everything got better. And I did not have a testimony like that. In fact, the worst parts of my life came after I became a Christian. You know, it was kind of boring up till I became a Christian. But one thing that did change is the gravity of my life changed. Before I knew Christ... I could, you know, by real effort, if I was really trying, I could try and be optimistic and kind of outgoing and a good person. But after that, even when things, when you go through like just disaster and I would get very angry, when I wouldn't put effort into being angry and running away from God, as soon as I'd stop, I'd just naturally start drifting back towards God. I couldn't help it. So I could see that Messiah had changed something in me. 
Now you've changed everything. I mean, he hasn't changed everything in all of you, man. Some of you guys are really horrible people. Um, <laughs> truth to tell, we are all horrible people. Um, my wife, one time, uh, when we were visiting a church for the first time, was talking about wondering how anybody there could relate to her because it was all perfect people with perfect families. And one, I like, had to tell her, I'm like, one thing I can tell you as a pastor, um, and at that time as a former pastor, um, is that that's, that's not the reality of anybody's life. That's what you're seeing. But there's nobody out there that doesn't just have disaster in their life and hurt in their life and shame in their life. And we all do, but it's all things God is healing and will heal. And that is the sign of Messiah. That is the sign that Messiah is there. If we are looking for spectacular, supernatural works, we will miss the constant works of Messiah, of feeding us, of opening our eyes, of healing us, of driving the demons out of our lives. That is the sign of Messiah in our life.